0: The is reminding people that the Georgia Crisis and Access Line can help those worried about opioid and stimulant misuse. The toll-free number is online and is
1: active 24-7. More information at opioidresponse.info. Actors, authors, musicians, and museums have sustained audiences stuck at home throughout isolation.
2: In any sort of disruption, we we revisit what it means to be human, and artistic expression is at the center of that.
1: I'm Virginia Prescott, today on Second Thought, how the COVID-19 pandemic is reshuffling the arts, economically, culturally, and creatively. And folk musician and activist Billy Bragg has never been satisfied just making records. We'll talk with him about poetry, protest, and his new political pamphlet on accountability. Plus, Julia Alvarez became a best-selling author by filling in gaps in the literary landscape. I wanted
0: to see my Latina culture in the books that I read, and so I kind of wrote those missing places in my shelf.
1: In her new novel, a woman wrestles with grief, identity, and the plight of people who have long been considered invisible workers and who are now considered essential. On Second Thought is coming up. First, the news. From Georgia Public Broadcasting, this is On Second Thought. I'm Virginia Prescott. Artists and arts organizations were quick to adapt to coronavirus. Museum tours, operas, Broadway shows, author talks, home concerts, and classes for kids sprung up online shortly after closures were announced. These institutions and the artists, performers, and independent organizations essential to the cultural ecosystem have also been living through the quarantine, and predictions for their economic survival are not all rosy. Doug Shipman is with us via Zoom to talk about what happens to the arts when society breaks down and how that will change as things slowly open back up. Doug Shipman is president and CEO of the Woodruff Arts Center in Atlanta. Doug, so great to have you with us. Thank you for your time.
2: Thanks, Virginia. Thanks for having me. All
1: right. So, Dad's Garage, they conducted a survey of how 55 Atlanta arts organizations are faring through the pandemic. Unsurprisingly, significant financial losses, but nearly 20% said they may have to close permanently. Any idea of direct economic impact on Atlanta institutions?
2: Well, Atlanta is home to many, many arts organizations. There are more theaters per capita in Atlanta than almost any other major city. And we've gotten very good at earning money over time um, through ticket sales and and other kinds of things. And so when you can't operate, it's been huge economic loss. Um, the industry across the entire region employs tens of thousands of people. And I think in many cases, 30, 40, 50% of folks may have been furloughed already mm-hmm. uh, simply because of the inability to operate. Well, you mentioned
1: many of these smaller organizations especially rely on ticket sales. So which organizations do you think are the most vulnerable right now?
2: Well, certainly um, those that are not large, um, that are frequently performing, um, they are very vulnerable because they need that constant cash flow. Um, Certainly organizations, um, smaller ones that don't have endowment or reserves over time, that survey showed that some organizations do have reserves, uh, many do not. Of course, they are very hard hit. And then the other that some don't think about is the fact that um, many arts organizations are run by parents, um, those with kids, and schools not being out makes it extremely difficult. So that also constrains the ability to, you know, to engage. You are at the
1: Woodruff Arts Center, of course, a giant on the local arts scene and a big player on the national scene. And we have seen The Met lobbying a, a campaign called Congress Save Culture, that's hashtag Georgia ranks below bottom on state arts funding. Do you see a role for federal help in this case?
2: Absolutely. The um, federal help has already come in a couple of forms in legislation. One is a a big increase in National Endowment for the Arts and National uh, Endowment for the Humanities funding, which will uh, start to flow through in a few weeks. Uh, The Paycheck Protection Program is available to nonprofits. Um, Those that are smaller, Um, the Woodruff Arts Center was not uh, eligible, were too big, but many arts organizations are. And then there's some view that uh, the the Main Street Lending Program run by the Federal Reserve will be available. So these are short-term fixes. But really, I think the long-term impact and especially how patrons feel about coming back, are really going to determine the the depth of this crisis. Mm -hmm.
1: Well, you have, of course, had to cancel events from the Atlanta Symphony, the Alliance Theater. How have your patrons responded to that?
2: Our patrons have been very understanding. Uh, When something has been canceled, they have, uh, instead of asking for a refund, they've donated the proceeds of the tickets back to us, or they've taken a credit for a future event, which is uh, extremely helpful and, and very uh, appreciated. Um, when things have been postponed, they've been very understanding. We've also had many people taking advantage of some of the virtual resources that um, you mentioned in your intro. So we've had a lot of support, but I think also there's just a reality that in an economic downturn, when the stock market goes down and when people are losing their jobs, you know, there's just only so much support that folks can give, and and we still depend philanthropically um, for support to make uh, everything work.
1: Let's talk about some of those virtual offerings. I mean, one could rarely see operas and theaters allowing their content to be streamed, but right now that is pretty much all there is. So, how has the Woodruff managed this migration of audiences to online?
2: Well, there are a couple of different parts to that one is we've actually knew as we were closing down um, that we might be closed for a while so we were able to record some things that were happening right at the end of performances some of those performances were were not only filmed but filmed in a way that are very streamable we've also opened up the archives there is a lot of archival material that exists um, but there's also been new material created curators talking about works and such Uh, But one of the interesting pieces of this is that there's been a real breakthrough for a long time. uh, Contracts with actors, with producers, with musicians really didn't allow for streaming content very easily. And those have been opened up. I think everybody is understanding that we have to innovate in this time period. And and that's been one of the innovations that's happened at the Woodruff Arts Center and some of our agreements, but also nationally.
1: Is there any fear that people will not come back into the theaters or the museums to see performers if they get used to watching them online?
2: So this has been a great question uh, that has been debated for a long time. Um, I personally think the answer is no. I think the experience of a live show is much different or uh, interacting with a live exhibition is much different than at home. I think we see this in entertainment. You can see almost any musical artist somewhere online, um, even in live concert format, but people still flock to concerts because that energy is so acute. Um, I think the bigger question for us is from a health standpoint when people are going to feel comfortable being in the same room together and close together. I think that's the bigger question, not not the one around uh, whether or not they'll come back if they have the live streaming option. In fact, some studies have shown that the live streaming option actually increases demand.
1: Oh, I know that the the High Museum, especially, has been a huge success story for inclusion. So, is there an indication here of whether you're reaching new audiences and what that means for the future, not just for the museum itself, but also for these individual performers, their work being broadcast to much wider audiences?
2: So there are some indications that obviously virtual uh, content knows no geography. Uh, So we do see that there are those well outside of Atlanta or Georgia or even the Southeast that are finding their way to um, exhibitions, curator talks. Uh, Also, the Alliance actually did a virtual spring break. The Alliance sent you a package of materials, and then there was a combination of recorded and live interactions with the kids. And there were participants actually from all over the country.
1: So do you think that digital environment for the arts is going to last even after these organizations can open back up?
2: I do. I think it's. I think it shows us that there are uh, circumstances and populations that a digital situation makes more sense for. One is when people miss the, the performance, especially something like the symphony. It may only be there for one night. Uh, we have done some streaming in the past. And for instance, when Long Long was on campus a couple of years ago, we live streamed that and over the course of a few weeks, 200,000 people watched. There were mm-hmm. only about 1,700 in the audience. So I think that when people miss the performance, there's, a, there's sort of a, a tale of interest. Uh, I think also in, in some cases, there's interest that's not geographically bound. And so finding a way to additionally add this on, I think it will continue.
1: My guest is Doug Shipman. He's president and CEO of the Woodruff Art Center. And we're talking about the impact of coronavirus on the arts and cultural world now as it's happening. And I'd like to talk about after. Um, First though, artists, you know, we've been talking about organizations mostly and institutions. How about the artists themselves? What has this meant for them and the Atlanta art scene?
2: Well, it's been devastating for artists. There was a survey that came out this week that that said that two thirds of artists have had significant impact um, to their work and 90% have lost income, uh, whether it's galleries, performances or such. And uh, for instance, uh, actors get their health care as they work. They get credit through the actors union. So there's a huge impact on individual artists. Uh, on Atlanta, you know, Atlanta has had success in the last 10 years or so, keeping artists here in their mid-careers. I desperately hope that we can continue that. Um, And I worry that artists may not be able to sustain themselves. The other piece of that is the gig economy is one that artists use to help uh, augment themselves as they're doing new work or as they're in between gigs or in between jobs. And if that part of the economy doesn't come back, especially restaurant servers and such, that's long been a place that artists work you know, during the day so they can act at night or vice versa. Mm-hmm. Um, I hope that those industries don't have a tangential impact on artists and cause them to, to not make as much work or, or even leave their art making. That, that's my number one concern in this whole time period
1: we think of abstract expressionism, you know, that came, and existentialism after World War II and the Tribeca Film Festival. This was an attempt to restore lower Manhattan after 9-11. What kind of responses do you think will be made in the art world to this crisis?
2: It's an excellent point. I definitely think there'll be responses, and I think the responses won't only be over the next few weeks or months, but I think this kind of situation usually creates a period of time over a few years I, I think there are a couple of things. One, this has been a very isolating experience for a lot of individuals. So I think there'll be some commentary on isolation. Um, I think certainly inequality and its effects, its devastating effects during this showcased um, in many ways. And, and frankly, how widespread um, the deaths associated with this are. Mm-hmm. Um, if it is, you know, very extensive and over a very long period of time, then I think it will also include memorials and reflections on mortality um, like you would have in a post-war kind of situation. You know, it's interesting in, in, in being in my role for the last several years, I've been able to see artists up close. And the thing is, artists spend months, maybe even years with the work, perfecting it, grappling with it, usually with very big questions about life and society and, and mortality and humanity, um, because this is what artists do, even in times of non-pandemics. This is what artists think about, and this is how the creative process works. Mm-hmm.
1: Right. It takes time to usually process those kind of big social disruptions, but in this case, this this crisis brought everything to a screeching halt so quickly, and and now we have Instagram and in real time posting. You know, unlike the uh, artist or writer working under Nazi occupation, you know, coming out years later. Now artists are posting in Instagram on real time. How are you seeing that them interpret or reflect what is actually going on now?
2: Yeah, I see them uh, really thinking about what it means to be able to be connected, what it means to be able, and then the loss associated with not having that connection. Um, so I see a lot of our artists talking about that, reflecting on what they miss, reflecting on the role of nature. I think one of the interesting things is that that people have had to slow themselves down and become much more localized. So you see artists um, sketching things that are near their homes on their daily walks, photographing things nearby, um, as opposed to, you know, having the ability to travel and do things elsewhere. Uh, So I think that they're responding in real time to the stimulus that is occurring in an isolation kind of situation.
1: Yeah, I know I you know, go walking every morning in Grant Park near where I live and there have been little balloon flowers or animals or other decorations that have been popping up every day. It feels like people are exploring their own creativity at this time. Well, What does that mean for the whole artistic and cultural ecosystem?
2: Well, I think that's right. I mean, I think that in any sort of disruption, we we revisit what it means to be human and artistic expression is at the center of that. And so you see people not only consuming, like you talked about through online means, but you also see them producing. It is literally art. You see people painting things. You see them returning to the instrument that they long ago played in high school. Mm -hmm. But you also see it through things like landscaping. You see it through gardening. I think it will mean a lot. I think there will be a lasting effect in people wanting to create and be around creation.
1: And now that so many of us, I mean, people did just flock online to these free museum tours of Mm -hmm. all over the world, the Louvre, the Hermitage, you know, everything, the High Museum, Mm -hmm. um, and passing around information about informal home concerts. I mean, now there's a nightly list of where you can go for informal home concerts. Do you think this period has created a kind of reassessment of where the arts live in our lives?
2: Yes, I do think that, especially because sports have been shut, um, that would have been the other natural place to turn. If everybody's at home, you can watch you know, the game, but the games have stopped. And because of that, this has been the common way in which we can socialize. People have said one of the common questions in any conversation, what are you watching? What have you discovered? What's your new favorite thing? Which DJ did you watch on Instagram? It has become the water cooler talk without the water cooler. (laughs) And so I do think that it it elevates what it means, but I think these things will last. I think that in some ways it will recenter us around the creative arts as the conversation pieces.
1: Doug Shipman, thank you so much for your time.
2: It's my pleasure. Be safe.
1: Doug Shipman, he's president and CEO of the Woodruff Art Center. As we head into the break, we'll leave you with A New Coat of Paint by Tom Waits. Let's put a new coat of paint on this lonesome old town. Coming up, we hear from singer-songwriter Billy Bragg. He's going to be talking about his life and career and his new book. Stay with us. This is Virginia Prescott with On Second Thought.
0: At a time when information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause and rewind. NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's Line wherever you get your podcasts.
1: From Georgia Public Broadcasting, this is On Second Thought. I'm Virginia Prescott. Billy Bragg is many things at once. A poet, punk rocker, folk musician, singer-songwriter. Here's his song, Between the Wars.
3: I family in time of austerity with sweat and the between the
1: walls he's also a best-selling author and activist a popular music historian Woody Guthrie torchbearer and a rabble rouser in the words of another poet he contains multitudes. Bragg's newest work, The Three Dimensions of Freedom, is a slim volume that makes a weighty argument. It's a pamphlet in the tradition of Thomas Paine, whose influential polemics helped spark the American Revolution, and later got him convicted of sedition. Bragg's new polemic takes a match to a contemporary powder keg, free speech, and advocates for more accountability in the public realm. He'll be talking about the book in a Zoom event that you are welcome to join. That's on Wednesday, May the 6th at 6 p.m. But before that, he is joining me from the U.K. Billy Bragg, thank you so much for taking the time.
3: It's a pleasure to be here, Virginia.
1: All right, you've been expressing your opinions about politics and the state of the world since the late 1970s. Also written books and poems. And this is your second pamphlet, which even the word has a little bit of a old-world sensibility to yeah. it. Why, why a pamphlet now in the TikTok well, video? Well, I
3: don't know. The only thing I can think of, because it's slim, I suppose you can put it through someone's letterbox like a pamphlet. I don't know why, but that's what the, the publishers said. They're doing a series of pamphlets. Is there anything you want to sound off about. And I'd just given a a talk at the Bank of England in London about the lack of accountability um, in responses to the 2008 crash. So I kind of had 3,000 words, so I just expanded it out from that.
1: I'm looking at uh, the previous pamphlets that have made history. The rights of man from Thomas Paine advocated for the right of people to overthrow their government. He was convicted in absentia for challenging the government in power you're challenging readers to question our own beliefs about power. What, what do you think we're missing?
3: Well, I think the uh, the election of Donald Trump in your country is, has brought the issue of accountability to the very front of of politics and also our social discourse. You know, the lack of accountability online when people are uh, discussing issues on Twitter or Facebook, or wherever. You know, very often the loudest voice wins. And I don't think that that's helpful for actually having a free society, because you have to really have, not just freedom of speech, everybody has that right, obviously the right to express an opinion, that's a fundamental bedrock of freedom. But it has to be accompanied with equality, the recognition that everybody has the right to express their view, and very often, um, you don't get that, people don't want to be contradicted, they don't want to hear the other person's opinion. But even that alone, just liberty and equality is not enough. That's just a res- recipe for, a, for an argument. You really need something that, that draws a, a parameter around the argument. And I think that has to be the dimension of accountability. You know, you have, to, you have to express your opinion. You have to respect the rights of others. But both you and the person you're talking to have to accept that you have to take responsibility for the things that you say and that you do. And if we can have those three together, it sets up a space where we can have a discourse that in which everyone is respected, everyone's opinion is heard. It's not about you know, stopping a particular opinion. It's about ensuring that everybody gets to express their views, everybody gets to um, speak in a way where they're not abused and not bullied, but fundamentally we, we respect one another and what each other has to say.
1: Well, you said the election of Donald Trump. And I think what is important in this book for me is that you, this is not necessarily a right or left issue. And I think what often happens in political discourse, because of the way our system is set up, there's a very binary thinking that you're either you say something and it's parsed either to the right or the left. Where does accountability fit into that kind of what has become tribalism?
3: The partisan politics that you have in your country makes it very difficult for people to communicate with one another. And people are too willing to dismiss the argument of the other person by using phrases such as, uh, you know, political correctness, or accusing people of being woke. I mean, that's a trope used by reactionaries to police the limits of social change. And it's a way of shutting people down. The equivalent from the left is to accuse someone of being a fascist or a racist or something without actually dealing with... the the point that they're making. Sure, there are racists out there. There are definitely fascists out there as well. But we, not every person that we encounter who disagrees with us fits easily into those boxes. So by respecting the opinion of the other person, by respecting their right, and then that person reciprocating with your right, have, you know, a, a civil discourse with them in which, you know, in the end of it, you might both learn something. But what we're trying to do really is create that space where everyone is respected and where reasonable argument and reasonable disagreement and offensive argument as well. It's not about stopping people making offensive remarks, but there is a limit. And I think that limit is abusive language. Um, And I think that's where accountability comes in. If people are making abusive comments online, then we have to find a way to hold them to account for that.
1: We've seen, we live in this attention economy, right? And you make the point in the book that context is everything. So you wouldn't necessarily call your neighbor, you disagree with a fascist to their face, but you do it no. online, right? Yeah. Or it well, can be done online.
3: Yeah, but that's the kind of um, the strange public-private thing that if you get on a, and sit in an airline seat in the middle seat on an airline and you spread yourself out and invade someone else's space, you're likely to get someone, you know, confront you. Because you wouldn't, But you wouldn't do that because you recognize that everybody has their space. But when you're online, you're in a private space, as we are now talking to one another, but thousands of people can hear you. So consequently, we say things in our, in our online identity that we would never say in our private. And we have to kind of bring some of that personal accountability into the online discourse. And unfortunately, the example that we're getting from the top from your president, and I have to say also from our prime minister, because both Boris Johnson and Donald Trump never really have taken responsibility for things in their private or their public or their political lives. They're sending out a rather negative signal along those lines, I think.
1: Well, let's talk about the accountability and the limits. You said that, you know, you should be able to call somebody out online, but the American constitution at least protects free speech, And the offences are defined differently by different people. So, you know, maybe it's a crude joke in a comedy special or on Twitter or criticising a political leader or flat-out hate speech. So what is the yardstick for what people should be held to account for? Because you said abusive language. Plenty of Mm. that comes up in jokes and a sort of banter.
3: Well, here's the the, the problem. If we're having this discussion now, Virginia, does your constitution – Rule the definition of free speech, or does my constitution rule? Mm. Because we're because the internet doesn't recognize borders, you could be talking to anyone, you know. So, consequently, I think you have to have your own sense of where the parameters are. As far as I'm concerned, the limit is abuse, personal abuse um, is, is not acceptable. If someone uses abusive language to me online, I'll close down the discussion, I'll block them, I won't discuss them. But sometimes I'm having a, a huge disagreement with someone online. But because we are being civil with one another, I'd like to think we're both learning something. I'm certainly learning something because by hearing the other side of the argument, it allows me to have a different perspective on where they're coming from. Take, for instance, the reopening of shops in uh, Georgia. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it, you think to yourself, that's crazy. We couldn't do that here. It's not possible. But when I read an article today in the New York Times, a woman opening her uh, nail salon, explaining the economic necessity for that.
1: I also read something in the New York Times about a guy in Michigan, he works at a a pest control company, small company, and, you know, has to furlough more people if they don't get work. And he's worked really hard to make sure that they get health care for his company. And his protest to the restrictions in Michigan was not coming from a political perspective.
3: Yeah, yeah. We had to let a plumber in last week because we had a burst pipe. We're not all of us black and white, either absolutely nobody comes in or we're all gonna go out there and hold hands and go drink. And it's not like that. We're all in our own ways trying to deal with this situation, this unprecedented situation we find ourselves in. So it was very helpful to me to understand a little bit more what's behind the urge for people to want to go back to work. I totally understand it and I respect completely the point of view where she was coming from, you know, because both she and both I are doing everything they can to ensure people's safety. And we're all of us, wherever we are trying to make sense of the situation we find ourselves in and how we might get out of it. So information about what other people are doing, whether it's the people in Sweden or the people in uh, Georgia, is very interesting to us because both the Swedes and the Georgians are taking a different approach to the one that we have here in the UK. So the internet both ha- is positive because it gives us a chance to do that, but we don't have the rules. It's come from nowhere. It has no constitution. The internet has no constitution. It seems to me there needs to be something that allows us to deal with those people who are trying to close us down, whether they're coming from the right or coming from the left. And what I'm trying to put out there with with my book is an idea for some parameters, not as the answer to our problems, but to try and find the space where our partisan politics doesn't infect the discussions that we really should be having. There's far too much people who are trying to, this is the paradox, trying to shut people up in the name of free speech.
1: Well, let me actually push on that for a minute because... You know, this is a polemic. This is an argument. This is not you're not making policy proposals, but you do suggest a number of things that need to change more transparency, better representation, particularly for the working class um, oversight and regulation. So let's use this example of those who are protesting the lockdown or pushing back for reopening economies. What is the accountability circle there?
3: Well, I think really what it comes down to, what, what accountability gives you is agency over your life. And I think, unfortunately, the, the democratic process, as um, practiced in my country and in your country, where we don't have a proportional voting system that delivers a, a majority uh, representation in Parliament and in Congress, people have no longer feel that their voice is heard. They no longer feel that they have agency over their lives. So that's why they're, they're prone to respond to things like political correctness, because by um, getting involved in the culture war, they feel they have some kind of agency. They feel that their side is, in inverted commas, winning, you know.
1: I'm speaking with the singer, songwriter and author Billy Bragg. He's out with a new book called The Three Dimensions of Freedom, a pamphlet, really. And he's going to be doing an event for a Zoom event for acapella books this coming Wednesday. That's May the 6th. You know, Billy Bragg, for years you have been making music not just about politics but certainly about love and about life experience. Mostly
3: about love. It's mostly about love. My music. It's just that so few people want to talk about politics that I end up being the one person who gets shuffled. I'm cool with that, by the way. But, yeah, <laughs> mostly I just write, I write about things that tee me off. That's all, whether it's emotions or politics or whatever.
1: Well, I've been listening to a lot of re-listening to a lot of your music, and I uh, just want to play a little bit from. This is from decades ago, uh, from the 1983 album "Life's a Riot" with Spy vs. Spy. This is the Milkman of Human Kindness. If you're lonely, I will call. If you're poorly, I will send poetry.
3: love you i am the milkman of human kindness i will leave an extra pint.
1: there's so much tenderness i think and empathy in so much of your music that has often been characterized as protest music But I saw this great photo of you. You're in 1984, performing on the street somewhere in the U.S., uh, carrying a PA system on your back, you know, this DIY kind of ethos. But I was thinking then that music used to be the way to stir people to action Mm. before Twitter, before social media. So where does that all live today?
3: Well, I mean, the thing is, in the 20th century, music was the only social medium available to young people. Music has kind of lost its vanguard role. But there's something else that you mentioned, particularly, and I'm glad you played the Milkman of Human Kindness because it's a very good example of it. I think whether you're a political songwriter or a love songwriter, any kind of songwriter, the currency of music is empathy. It has the ability to make you feel uh, for the, the plight of other people. You know, someone else might be in a political situation or more likely they're in an emotional situation. And you are either seeing yourself in that situation thinking how you'd feel or you've experienced that situation and you're they're helping you to reflect on that and that empathy i think is absolutely key to what the power of music is particularly today when there seems to be a war on empathy you know anyone who expresses any fellow feeling for someone particularly people outside their perceived group they're immediately dismissed as virtue signaling as if you know this is kind of some kind of bad thing, or being called woke, whereas well, really empathy is what music is all about.
1: So you famously took some of the music or lyrics left behind by Woody Guthrie and was or were asked by his daughter to write music for it. You and Wilco worked together three albums uh, that you did. Let's hear a little bit from that collection. This is Union
3: Prayer. I hear the prayer and praying. We'll change this word around. I fold my hands and I bow my head and I kneel down on the ground. I pray and I pray by night and day. Then I pray some more. I pray to my tongue that's dry as and I pray to my knees at sore.
1: What do you think Woody Guthrie would be doing now in in the age that we're living in?
3: Well, having seen Woody's writing and seeing that he used to write five songs a day some days, I think he would be all over social media like a rash. (laughs) He would be blogging, vlogging, everything possible to get his word out there. He was a compulsive communicator. Uh, I'm a communicator. I'm not compulsive, but I'm a great communicator. That's really what I do whether I'm writing a book, singing a song, talking to your listeners. But, yeah, I think Woody would be one of those characters that was, was out there all the time, had a high, very, very high profile. He'd be, uh, what's the word? Uh, um, what do they call these young people? An influencer? People? That's the word, an <laughs> influencer. He would be a kind of folk political influencer.
1: I think we could use a little more Woody Guthrie influence personally. Amen to that. So okay, what's next? More pamphlets, more songs. I mean, pamphleteer has a kind of nice ring to it.
3: It does, it does. But I kind of writing the books. I mean, writing that, that book and particularly writing the Skiffle book was a way of kind of clearing the decks to clear my mind, so I could get to the next record rather than going straight through and out the other side. Because when you've been doing it as long as I have, you know, you can get stuck in a circle: gigs, tour, tour, gig, gig, tour. So it's been nice to get my head into writing books, and also it's a challenge. It's some. It's outside of my experience. You know the. The thing I'm most proud about, particularly with the Skiffle book, is that the key moment in Skiffle, Lonnie Donegan releasing Rock Island Line, doesn't happen until Chapter 13. (laughs) You know, rather than start there, I went right back to the building of the Rock Island Railroad, which the song Rock Island Line was the song that Lonnie had his hit with, and also managed to squeeze in a potted history of jazz, which I didn't really know a huge amount about before I started out. So I had a lot of fun doing it. I really enjoyed the the, um, revelation.
1: It is such an interesting history and the skiffle book, as you refer to it, is Roots, Radicals and Rockers, a a terrific book by my guest, Billy Bragg. Billy Bragg, I want to thank you so much for your time.
3: My pleasure. Thank you very much, Virginia.
1: Billy Bragg, singer, songwriter with a storied career in music, also an author. His most recent book is called The Three Dimensions of Freedom, and he's going to be talking about the book with music journalist Chad Radford, who is excellent, by the way. You're really going to enjoy it. That's going to be at a Zoom event hosted by Acapella Books on Wednesday, May 6th at 6 p.m. You can find out more about it at gpbnews.org. And as we head into the break, we'll leave you with another song of Billy Bragg's. This is from the 2013 album Tooth and Nail. It's called Tomorrow's Going to Be a Better Day. Coming up, Julia Alvarez on aging and the immigrant experience and writing the kind of books that she wanted to see on her own shelf. I'm Virginia Prescott. Stay with us for more of On Second Thought.
3: Tomorrow's gonna be a better day We're gonna make it that way
1: We are back with On Second Thought from GPB, Virginia Prescott. Julia Alvarez joined me for a virtual author talk last week. The Atlanta History Center offers these programs for free on Zoom, so anyone can watch and submit their own questions. Julia Alvarez is a National Medal of the Arts winning poet and author. After writing a number of picture books and novels for children, she recently published Afterlife. It's her first novel for adults in nearly 15 years. Afterlife is about Antonia Vega, a woman in her late 60s who's reckoning with isolation and her identity after her husband's sudden death. The book feels particularly resonant now when a world upended by the ongoing coronavirus pandemic is wrestling with its own kind of communal grief. I asked Julia Alvarez to share more about how Antonia is coping with her loss. Grief can be so
0: huge and come in huge waves, and she's kind of trying to keep and maintain control. She's got this whole structure. She loves these um, writers and these texts that she's lived by, but all of a sudden her life is asking more of her than just her words and her strategies. And so that's really where the novel takes off. That she just, it's not gonna work as it never does. You know, Uh, this is part of the reason that I wanted the title Afterlife because I think a life contains within it many little deaths. We die to the child we were, to the teenager, to dreams we had, to certainties we had, and you have to rebuild again. But there's that point at which it's fallen apart and you haven't yet rebuilt and you just don't know what's going to happen, you know, as you put your life back together, hopefully in a bigger version of itself.
1: The stages of life come across to me here because this is your first novel, as we mentioned, for adults after writing several picture books, books about coming of age. Then this is an elder who has come to another point in her life, an elder who's lost elements of her identity. So what is it that turns your mind here to this stage of life? Well, you know, it's
0: funny. I was thinking about my beginnings as a writer. Part of what I wanted to do is that I wanted to have books that I never got to read. I felt like I had wonderful literature and teachers and read amazing authors, but I ached for somebody whose aunt was a tia, not an aunt. You know, uh, I wanted to see my Latina culture in the books that I read. And so I kind of wrote those missing places in my shelf. And I was thinking that one of the things that I've been yearning for as I grow older is that um, having books about characters who are older, women especially, what is it like to be an elder in a community? What does it feel like to address what that means in your own life? And so I think part of it was wanting to address what it means to be an elder, without, not with a cliche or in a pokey, you know, viejita, wise woman kind of way. No, you know, what... Is, what is it really like to be growing older and to try to figure out who you are in this stage of life? Mm -hmm. And I think in part it's, I was thinking most often the novels and the memoirs and the nonfiction have been from male points of view. What I love about this novel, is from a grandmother and her granddaughter. So we hear history through that female point of view. You know, it's a different perspective. And you will access different things about that experience when it comes through this other sensibility. And I'm, I'm interested in, in that underreported or underrepresented story, the story of the people that were the anonymous ones or the invisible ones or the voiceless ones, because there's such rich stories there. And I wanted to tell
1: them. Oh, The voiceless come through very strongly in this. There are two big dramas going on in Antonia's life. She does volunteer to translate at a local clinic in her Vermont hometown. This is where a lot of undocumented migrants who work on farms and work on homes in Vermont get treated. But she's also a little irritated that locals refer to them as Her people. You know, she's not Mexican. She lives a very different life. Can you talk about this dynamic that really drives the story the difference in her and those people on some level?
0: Well, she's irritated sometimes by how the diversity that a mainstream grants itself isn't granted to her ethnicity and culture. That there are differences from words to foods to histories between one group of Latinos and another. We're not all Hispanics. We're not all Latinx. There's this richness and this diversity that she feels isn't granted, even by people that are liberal-minded and that want to be aware of her ethnicity. It's just like once they put her in that ethnicity, they just paint it with a broad brush. And she wants to be granted the full complexity of who she is. So I think that's part of it. And of course, there were issues of class. Mm -hmm. She's had certain advantages that these undocumented workers don't have. And she's very well aware of the power dynamics there. And it makes her feel uncomfortable. And yet, you know, she is the one with the power. And so what is she gonna do with it?
1: You're listening to my conversation with Julia Alvarez, author of the new novel, Afterlife. I spoke with her as part of the Atlanta History Center's author talk series over Zoom. There is also this commonality, as you said, you know, she's an immigrant and has things have been projected upon her, but she also recognizes vestiges of the immigrant toolkit in herself. What is in that toolkit?
0: I think that it's um, what happens with an immigrant who becomes a hybrid as Antonia does is that you don't really belong immersed and embedded in either culture. You're this hybrid and these balances of how much of this and how much of that are not things that are settled and done with. It's something that you take through to every experience and every challenge that confronts you. How will you operate in a way that is true to who you are? And Antonia catches herself also putting people in their cubbyholes, you know, the right-wingers, the white supremacists. You know, she, she's so quick to other other people in a way that she doesn't want to be done to her. Mm-hmm. But I think it's part of when you enter a new world and you don't feel totally comfortable in it, that you're constantly trying to figure out what is safe out there, where you belong, who to trust, what it is that needs to be kept back, and what it is that can come forward. All of these are strategies that Antonia has obviously learned well because she's ostensibly succeeded, but she's not comfortable with the settledness of it. She needs to constantly investigate what that is, and especially when She's hit a point in her life where everything's falling apart. Mm -hmm. So as she picks up all those little pieces, what is an accurate reflection of who she is? And I don't mean just that she gets labeled as a certain ethnicity, but people assume, for instance, she's married to a white mainstream guy Mm -hmm. um, who's very political and has a lot of opinions. And all her friends assume that she, being the Latina, has made him the radical that he is, but actually he's the one that's much more the activist and she's the one that's pulled into it by him. So I'm really interested in those, breaking apart those assumptions we have because they prevent us from coming together as an authentic community where we just have these little gated ideas of who people are.
1: You're hitting on something that I thought was really interesting in the book that you mentioned that Sam was more of an activist than she. So she's continually imagining how he would handle the dilemmas that she's now faced with. And then she imagines writing a book, if she ever gets back to writing, about people considered to be invisible. You know, The people who clean the offices and the hospitals and work on fast food lines and, and pick vegetables. So there's this gap between how she wants to come across as a writer, a, you know, a valiant champion of those who need to be heard, and she's also got this wish not to become involved in other people's problems. And I wonder what's what is in that gap there for you.
0: Well, that's interesting because again, it's that dynamic, it's that balance between the activist and the artist. Mm-hmm. And um, I've often felt coming from the Dominican Republic and going back there that. Um, There's a kind of privilege that I feel uncomfortable with. So much needs to be done when I go back to the DR that I I just feel like, what am I doing writing? I should put my energy, my resources, my whole attention on this. But you also have to serve according to your nature. And activism that is sustainable has to come from what you're deeply passionate about because I think doing loving work in the world, even if it's not ostensibly activist, is a kind of activism. It's helping to create a beloved community. And so I think that's really important. And I think it's a concern of Antonia. It's a concern of mine. It's now something that is being paid attention to during the pandemic. All of a sudden, I drive into town and there's a sign. It says, Thank you, truckers. Wow, (laughs) they've been trucking forever and a day. I mean, all of a sudden we are aware of the essential work that gets done by people that are anonymous, you know? And so I think Antonia is aware of that or becomes aware in her grief, Mm -hmm. where she's stripped away from all the things that maybe prevented her from seeing And this is what grief does. It's what um, a moment like we're living in now does. Suddenly, the things that were your blinders and they kept you busy are stripped away. And all of a sudden, you're aware of how these things get done. And so she's, I think grief is doing that for her. She's become more and more aware
1: of this world that she has been protect her from. Antonia, she she wants to be more like her husband was, to get involved with the plight of others, but remains kind of barricaded with self-control and discipline. And there's a question here from an anonymous attendee, whether or not there was an event in your life or in our country that has made you feel like it's time to dive into this, this particular problem in the novel that needs to be told at this time.
0: Oh, I definitely think that we are in a moment and it's a moment that this pandemic is bringing home to all of us as we are together apart. That wonderful phrase that I've also used to describe reading, that reading has always been about being together apart where we do have to become more engaged in building community. It's a luxury. It's an irresponsibility to just feel like you are in your little protected world and you are buffered from anything else and you other other people, we will not survive if we continue in that trajectory. And I think that's part of the challenge to Antonia and to all of us, how to be a community. And because we're forced now to be virtual, I think we're realizing, I mean, the amount of communications that goes on during the day, people realizing their desire to come together. I feel hopeful about that and what we're learning. And I think reading has always known that. Stories have always known that, that we are all part of a big family. And so I think it's definitely a challenge that we're facing now and that, my character, Antonia, vases and um, tries to integrate into her own life. But we all need a little discomfort, more discomfort uh,
1: in our lives. That's Julia Alvarez on her latest novel, Afterlife. You can hear my full conversation with Julia, including more about her writing process and a list of the books that she is reading while in isolation. That's all at gpbnews.org. And we'll be broadcasting excerpts of more author talks from this series in the coming weeks. You can join our next talk with Mary Beth Keene in two weeks on Tuesday, May 12th at 7 p.m. it will be on Zoom. Find details and watch videos on the Atlanta History Center's website, atlantahistorycenter.com or on gpb.org slash community. We're going to leave you with Marola, performed by the Dominican artist Nicola, as we wrap up our show for today. But we want to let you know we're putting together a conversation for next week about weird dreams during coronavirus. Have you been dreaming more vividly? Well, you're not alone. Some researchers found a 35% increase in dream recall. So we'd love to hear a little bit more about your dreams. Leave us a voicemail at 404-500-9457 with your wildest our most bizarre COVID dream. On Second Thought is produced by Priya Mahadevan. Supervising producer is Amelia Brock. Jesse Nicewanger and Jake Troyer are our engineers. Our intern is Chase McGee and executive producer is Mary Lynn Ryan. I'm Virginia Prescott. Be safe out there. And thanks so much for spending some time with On Second Thought. <laughs>